From New York, this is Democracy Now! Hello, protectors of the Ohio Constitution! Hello, freedom fighters! Did we do it? Voters in Ohio have overwhelmingly rejected a Republican-backed effort to make it harder to amend the state constitution ahead of a November ballot initiative to enshrine abortion rights in the Constitution. We'll go to Ohio, then to Detroit, to talk to a woman who was falsely arrested and jailed while eight months pregnant due to faulty facial recognition software. Portia Woodruff is the first woman and at least the sixth person to report being falsely accused of a crime as a result of AI facial recognition. All six people have been black. Then to Mississippi, where six white former police officers who called themselves the Goon Squad have pleaded guilty to raiding a home and torturing two black men. But not only did they brazenly commit these acts, but after inflicting serious bodily injury by firing a shot through one of the victim's mouths, They left him lying in a pool of blood. Gathered on the porch of the house to discuss how to cover it up. We'll speak to the two men who survived this horrific police assault. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. In a major victory for reproductive rights and democracy, Ohio voters decisively rejected raising the threshold for passing constitutional amendments from a simple majority to 60 percent. The special election Tuesday, pushed by the Republican-led legislature and funded by an Illinois billionaire, came three months ahead of the November election in which voters will decide if the right to an abortion should be enshrined in the Ohio Constitution. The outcome of Tuesday's election means only half of voters need to cast ballots in favor of the pro-choice amendment. An AP poll found a majority of Ohio voters support the right to abortion. We'll speak with former Ohio State Senator Nina Turner after headlines. The Supreme Court has upheld the Biden administration's ability to regulate ghost guns, assembly kits which allow buyers to build untraceable guns at home. The federal government can require manufacturers of ghost gun kits include serial numbers and conduct background checks on customers, while a challenge to the rule is heard in lower courts. Justices John Roberts and Amy Coney Barrett joined with the three liberal members in the 5-4 to four ruling. In Sudan, deadly fighting shows no sign of slowing down nearly four months since the war between the military and the paramilitary Rapid Support Forces, or RSF, broke out. Violence in Sudan's second most populous city, Amduran, has escalated over a control of a bridge crossing the Nile River used by the RSF to transport weapons. The health care system remains on the brink of collapse as medical facilities have been systematically targeted by fighters. The U.N. said Friday the conflict has left 24 million people, half of Sudan's population, in 
need of food and other aid. But only 2.5 million have been able to receive assistance. Over 4 million people have been internally and externally displaced, with the largest number of refugees crossing into Chad. Refugees from West Darfur deplored the desperate situation. They were forced to flee. The situation in Morni is tragic. There are problems, arrests and assault at night. The war is continuing, so we left. Whoever finds a way gets out, and whoever does not find it remains in suffering. In Burma, a United Nations investigation has found the Burmese military is increasingly committing war crimes, ranging from sexual violence to mass executions. The crimes also include the indiscriminate targeting of civilians with bombs, the burning of homes and buildings, and at times the destruction of entire villages. In April, at least 165 people, including children and babies, were killed after Burmese military jets rained fire and bombs on the village of Pazigi. It was one of the deadliest attacks on civilians since the military junta seized power in a 2021 coup. Burmese armed forces claimed they were targeting terrorists. In Brazil, eight South American leaders agreed to form an alliance to protect the Amazon as they met during a high-profile summit hosted in Belém by the Brazilian president, Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva. Bolivia, Brazil, Colombia, Ecuador, Guyana, Peru, Suriname and Venezuela signed on to a declaration which includes pledges to end deforestation, crack down on criminal activity in the Amazon and lift up sustainable development. But the group stopped short of agreeing to a key indigenous demand for all countries to to join in Brazil's pledge to end deforestation by 2030 and in Colombia's pledge to halt any new oil exploration. On Tuesday, indigenous groups took to the streets of Belém to voice their demands. Because if there is no consent, we are not going to authorize public policies and every government to carry out extractivist, mining or oil projects in forests and nature. We indigenous peoples say no to that. We, the indigenous people, say yes to life because the Amazon is where everything is. Back in the United States and Atlanta, support is growing for a citywide referendum that could decide the future of Cop City, a massive multi-million dollar police training complex that would be the largest in the country. The King Center, run by Bernice King, the daughter of Martin Luther King Jr., has joined Cop City opponents in calling on Atlanta officials to allow for a public vote on the project. The center criticized Atlanta leadership for ignoring the ardent community opposition against Cop City and the use of public funding. The campaign vote to stop Cop City is working to meet an August 14th deadline to collect 70,000 signatures from Atlanta voters to put a referendum on the November ballot to stop Cop City. This comes as civil rights and human rights organizations, including the ACLU and the NAACP, are urging the Homeland Security Department to investigate the mass targeting and surveillance of Cop City protesters, as dozens of forest defenders have been arrested and charged with domestic terrorism. The group warn of, quote, dangers of vague, overbroad and stigmatizing terms like domestic, violent, extremist and militant to describe individuals who may be engaged in protected First Amendment activity, unquote. Meanwhile, an environmental group has sued the city of Atlanta as construction of Cop City has already contaminated local water streams. The lawsuit filed by the South River Watershed Alliance could temporarily block construction of Cop City. 
In Hawaii, officials issued an emergency proclamation as wildfires on the Big Island and Maui prompted evacuations and cut power to thousands of residents. Twelve people were rescued from the water after jumping into the ocean to escape the smoke and fire. The fires have been driven in part by high winds from Hurricane Dora in the Pacific. In parts of Maui, 911 and phone lines are down. In Philadelphia, the slain dancer and choreographer O'Shea Sibley was laid to rest on Tuesday. A suspect has been charged with murder as a hate crime. He shouted racist and homophobic slurs at Sibley and his friends while they were dancing at a Brooklyn gas station last month. Sibley's loved ones paid tribute to the 28-year-old dancer at his funeral service held at Philadelphia's Met Opera House. Shay had the power to touch everyone's heart, whoever met him. O'Shea was a beacon of light for a lot of us in our community that was engulfed in darkness. But O'Shea, O'Shea rejoiced. O'Shea was O'Shea. The video conferencing software Zoom has come under fire after it changed its user policy, opening the door for the company to use consumer data to train its AI system. Zoom responded to the backlash Monday by denying the company would use video or chat content for AI training without consent. But digital rights advocates say Zoom could still take the data for other purposes and that users may not easily be able to opt out of AI use if a call host chooses to allow it or is not aware of it. In 2020, Democrats called for the FTC to look into Zoom's privacy policies, accusing it of misleading customers on the security of its encryption. In related news, Zoom, an early hallmark of pandemic-era remote work, is facing backlash from employees after announcing it'll require workers within a 50-mile radius of its offices to return to on-site work two days per week. And in California, thousands of Los Angeles city workers walked off the job for 24 hours Tuesday in the first such strike in 40 years to protest repeated labor law violations by their employers. This is city worker Alfonso Williams. We all do a wonderful job. We're all needed. We're all either, we're essential workers out here. And we worked through the pandemic. We were out here. We never wavered. And so just bargain in good faith. And that's all we're asking. And when you don't bargain in good faith, this is what happens. The one-day work stoppage comes as Hollywood writers and actors remain on strike and as Los Angeles hotel workers have staged periodic walkouts after their contract expired at the end of June. The Hotel Workers Union, Unite Here, filed a labor complaint this week citing a number of violent retaliatory incidents at picket lines perpetrated by hotel security guards. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We begin today's show in Ohio where reproductive rights advocates are celebrating after voters overwhelmingly rejected a Republican ballot initiative to make it harder to amend Ohio's state constitution. Republicans pushed to have Tuesday's special election with the sole purpose of raising the threshold for passing constitutional amendments from a simple majority to 60 percent before November, when voters will decide if the right to an abortion should be enshrined in the Ohio Constitution.
The ballot initiative also attempted to make it harder to submit future constitutional amendments by requiring signatures from all of Ohio's 88 counties. Preliminary results show 57 percent of Ohio voters on Tuesday rejected the Republican ballot initiative, known simply as Issue 1. The election results marked a sharp shift from 2020, when Donald Trump won Ohio with 53 percent of the vote. President Joe Biden hailed the results, saying in a statement, quote, This measure was a blatant attempt to weaken voters' voices and further erode the freedom of women to make their own health care decisions. Ohioans spoke loud and clear, and tonight democracy won, he said. The Republican mega-donor and billionaire Richard Uline of Illinois, who's long been a key backer of anti-abortion groups, had bankrolled the Republican effort by giving $4 million to the group Protect Our Constitution. We go now to Cleveland, where we're joined by former Ohio State Senator Nina Turner, who's now a senior fellow at the Institute on Race, Power and Political Economy at the New School. Welcome to Democracy Now! It's great to have you with us, Nina. If you can start off by just responding to this overwhelming uh, victory for reproductive rights advocates. A jubilation. The people of the great state of Ohio have spoken resoundingly rejecting the GOP overreach, which is indeed a beautiful thing. And we know that uh, folks in Ohio, voters in Ohio from all the political ideologies weighed in on this and they said to the GOP, you have gone too far. And I know that the GOP themselves made this strictly about abortion. I, I understand abortion rights activists are celebrating that this is so much bigger than just abortion access. There will be issues on the ballot to raise the minimum wage. Who knows coming down the pike what other issues will be on the ballot. And the people of this state have a right to weigh in as a super majority and as a, excuse me, as a simple majority and not a super majority. And I am so glad that the GOP's power grab was rejected in this state. Lots, so, of time, lots to celebrate. So let's talk about who is behind this. Uh, Richard Uline of the Uline company Fortune, um, as well as the heir to the what, Schlitz Brewery Fortune. Uh, talk about the millions he poured in and the fact that this was what? I mean, the rules for Ohio have been in place for like a century. Yes, since 1912, Amy, it has been in play. Uh, obviously, this guy, he threw, threw uh, money good. Well, I shouldn't even say it was good money. They rejected him, too. And as the Republicans bemoan the so-called outside forces that are coming into this state, it is not lost on many of us that their biggest outside force just might as well take in that money and, and just set it afire. The voters of the state of Ohio did not buy what the Republicans were selling. It is another example of why we do need campaign finance reform in this state period across the board. When ultra, ultra wealthy people can decide what the rules of engagement are going to be without regard for the people in these various states. So whether it's Ohio today, Amy, as we know, other high, other states across the country, it is absolutely wrong. So the people of the great state of Ohio certainly has set in motion 
this 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 atmosphere of we're not going to let people just come in here and try to buy an election in the way that they did, especially when it comes to issues. And, Amy, you remember 2011 very well when the voters of the state, same broad coalition of voters, rejected the overreach of the GOP. I was in the legislature at that time to try to take away collective bargaining rights. That was about 62 percent. This issue last night failed by about 57 percent of the voters said Absolutely not. So, again, when it's put into the hands of the voters across the state of Ohio, they come together, even though Republicans have a supermajority in the legislature. They control all of the constitutional offices in this state. But I am so glad that a coalition of Democrats, Republicans, independents, no party people came together and said, not on our watch will we allow this to happen. And in fact, isn't it true that... um Republicans, too, conservative Republicans, were not pleased with this massive change and what it could mean for the future for other ballot initiatives. And if you can talk about how this doesn't only serve abortion rights advocates. That's right. That's right, Amy. I mean, even Governor John Kasich was against this issue. And so it it really is fundamentally about freedom. The freedom of the people of the state of Ohio to put something on the ballot and have the voters of this state weigh in. So, yes, while it may be abortion rights now and the sec, the current secretary of state, Frank LaRose, made it very clear that the Republicans drummed this up to try to defeat what will be on the ballot in November. They didn't even hide from it. They said that this was what this was about. But beyond the issues that are on the ballot in November, this is about any other issue that the people of this great state have an absolute right to weigh in on. And you know what, Amy, the, the irony that the party that that talks about so much freedom would then use their power, pure unadulterated, corrupting power to try to take away the voices of the people in the state. It did not work. And so whether you're Republican, Democrat, independent or or you're not rocking with any of the parties, the fact that if this had a if, if issue one had passed, it impacts what anybody else would want to try to put on the ballot to get the people to weigh in on. So absolutely, this is so much bigger than abortion rights. This is about the rights of the voters of this state to weigh in and to stop overreaching as they see fit. And Nina Turner, bigger than oh, the state of Ohio, and you've always had this uh, national perspective. You were top person in Bernie Sanders' presidential campaign, um, as well as now you're at the New School. Um, looking at the map, you have California, Montana, Kansas, Michigan, Kentucky, Vermont. All these states are indicating that the voters, whether it's a Republican state or a Democratic state, want to ensure abortion rights. What does this signify for the elections in November of 2024 from president on down? Well, hopefully this energy will continue to percolate. I will just caution that one issue, you know, just the issue of abortion itself is not going to be enough to animate in a way that will push, you know, a Democrat over the top. But it is part of a broader consensus about what true freedom and liberty looks like and having the American people across the country weigh in, whether it's economic freedom, uh, the freedom to be able to vote, the freedom to love, the freedom to have a living wage. As we can see, Amy, too, it's the percolation of, you know, and that's why this is not just about abortion, because we see also on the labor front, the enormous victory by the Teamsters at, at UPS 
protests, you know, what the writers and actors are doing right now in their protests. We can name Starbucks, Trader Joe's, Apple, you name it, nurses, teachers, people across this country are not in the mood for this kind of overreach. And so it is my hope that it is this, the, the, the synergy of all of these issues will catapult more people who really do care about changing and enhancing the material conditions of the poor, the working poor and the barely middle class, that that kind of energy continues, but not, it won't just be about abortion. It'll be about abortion and many other issues that impact the quality of people's lives. Nina Turner, I want to thank you for being with us. Former Ohio State Senator, Senior Fellow at the Institute on Race, Power and Political Economy at the New School. Coming up, we go to Mississippi, where six white former police officers who called themselves the Goon Squad have pleaded guilty to raiding a home and torturing two black men. One of them they shot in the mouth. The police officers, some face life in prison. The two men will join us after break. Blue dawn of night, go on. I've been missing you now with my whole life. Does my voice echo forward? My actions all that I possess And if need be, I will carry your death wish Back into the arms of this real the Diamond by Julie Byrne. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. A warning to our audience, this next segment contains descriptions and images of police violence. We turn now to Mississippi, where six white former police officers who called themselves the Goon Squad have pleaded guilty to raiding a home and torturing two black men earlier this year after first trying to cover up their actions. Some of the officers face life in prison. On January 24th, court records show the deputies raided a home in Braxton, Mississippi, after a white neighbor of one of the officers called them to complain there were black men staying there. The officer texted the others, quote, are y'all available for a mission? That night, without a warrant, the officers burst into the home, handcuffed, B, tasered the two men, Michael Corey Jenkins and Eddie Terrell Parker, also sexually abused them with a sex toy with shouting racial slurs. One of the officers put a gun in Jenkins' mouth for a mock execution 
and pulled the trigger. The bullet lacerated Jenkins' tongue, broke his jaw, exited through his neck. This is U.S. Attorney Darren LaMarca last week announcing federal charges against the former officers for the attack. But not only did they brazenly commit these acts, but after inflicting serious bodily injury by firing a shot through one of the victim's mouths, they left him lying in a pool of blood. Gathered on the porch of the house to discuss how to cover it up. What indifference. What disregard for life. After the attack, Michael Corey Jenkins was actually charged with a felony based on methamphetamine the officers said they found in the raid. But records show that was a lie and the charge was dropped. In fact, the deputies planted drugs to devise an excuse for the raid and also stole surveillance video from the house. Their body cameras were off. Court documents said the officers used the name Goon Squad, quote, because of their willingness to use excessive force and not to report it. The Associated Press found the deputies were linked to at least four violent attacks on black men since 2019. Two of the men died. For more, we're joined by Michael Corey Jenkins and Eddie Terrell Parker, as well as Malik Shabazz, a civil rights attorney with Black Lawyers for Justice, who's representing them. We welcome you all to Democracy Now! Malik, let's begin with you. Can you talk about how this case was exposed, um, how we saw um, these officers charged, and what you understand about their background, this not being the first vicious attack. Okay, thank you for having us on. I want to say before we get started that, that Michael and Eddie will only be speaking, that they cannot speak about the specific details of what happened in that house that night, but they can talk about their reactions to the guilty verdicts and, and to their pain and suffering. And, and Michael is suffering because half of his face is numb. But we're thank because we have sentencing coming up, so we're under certain sensitive legal guidelines. But we're happy to be on with such a progressive audience. This case was brought to light through the determination of, of black lawyers for justice, of myself as the attorney for Michael Jenkins and Eddie Parker and Mississippi C Counsel Trent Walker. From early January... We have advocated strongly and vigorously in every way, and we have worked with uh, community activists in Mississippi and throughout the country in order to bring the truth that is coming to light today, that these defendants, uh, Hunter Elward, Christian Dedman, Brett McAlpin, um, Middleton, Os Osdyke, and uh, Joshua Hartfield— that they, they're called the Rankin County Goon Squad. They're known in the community as the Rankin County Death Squad. This has been occurring for a long time under the leadership of Sheriff Brian Bailey, who is a, should be the subject of criminal investigation also. And uh, they have been getting away with this so long that they felt em em emboldened 
to act in such a radical and callous way on that night of January 24th, 2023. But it's through persistence. It's through intense legal advocacy with us advocating to the U.S. Justice Department, collecting evidence and applying legal pressure and all kinds of pressure to bring about what is now historic. Last Thursday, these six defendants uh, pled guilty uh, to uh, 14 federal criminal charges. They'll plead guilty to more state charges Monday. This is the first time democracy now. This is the first time that a white Mississippi police officer has ever been held criminally responsible for harming a black person. And we know that plenty of police brutality has occurred not only in Rankin County under Brian Bailey, but throughout the state of Mississippi. This is a history-making moment. I'm just so sorry it had to come on the, uh, on the backs of the pain and the suffering the torture and the shooting and the abuse and waterboarding of Michael Jenkins and Eddie Parker, our clients. I can't bear to go to Michael Jenkins and Eddie Parker meeting you in this way for what you went through that horrific January night. But I'm wondering if each of you could respond to the guilty plea of these officers and what it means to you that some of them may be facing life in prison. Um, Michael Jenkins, let's begin with you. Um, I feel I feel great that we're finally getting justice after after months. You know, um, at first they didn't even believe us. You know, um, for a while I didn't think they were gonna even get a slap on the wrist or anything. But I feel great about it. And I know it's uh, difficult for you to talk with the gun in your mouth. The police shot you through your mouth, lacerating your tongue. Uh, it went through to the, your neck, shredding that area of your neck. I am only glad that you can be with us today. Did you think you were going to survive that night, Michael? No, ma'am. No, ma'am. I'm, I'm still going through pain right now. My whole face numb, my mouth hurting right now. As we speak. And Eddie, Eddie Parker, if you can talk about your response to this plea deal. Um, that's a long time coming. Um, it's uh, something I, uh, I say there's also history too, you know, uh, uh, coming from a, a long uh, way of uh, going through this situation with the uh, the same police officers and pretty much uh, you, you steer clear, you know, stay out the way so you wouldn't end up in this situation. But ending up in this situation wasn't uh, was a part of me, you know, staying clear. So I'm uh, I'm astounded. I'm, I'm I'm real happy that it's it's finally come to a point where they're getting uh, you know getting a, a feeling of what they uh, what they dish out to people, you know, day in day out. Uh, and I really misspoke because it's not a deal. Um, they have pled guilty. Um, <clears throat> the idea that they call themselves, Eddie Parker, that they call themselves the Goon Squad, your thoughts? Uh, that's the Goon Squad. That's, uh, that seems to be a, a, a crime organization. That is, uh, they were, I guess they were paid to uh, 
to go out and, and you know, uh, to stop. But uh, they became that they self. I, I believe uh, policing and, you know, uh, the public, you know, go hand in hand. I mean, they're, they're people just like us. You know, they want to be uh, held accountable for, you know, uh, everything they do. They want to get, you know, uh, this, you know, certain, uh, I guess you say, um, the end of the stick treatment as, you know, being uh, the golden ones. But they're not the people just like us. I mean, they they go out and they do, you know, the opposite of what they're, they're getting paid to do. I, uh, I think it's it's very horrendous how they they can call themselves a you know goon squad and you know still uh, put on a badge and say they're protecting people. Hmm. Malik Shabazz, your lawsuit also mentions other times Rankin County sheriff deputies used excessive force. I want to ask you about Damian Cameron, who died in 2021 after being taken into custody by the same Rankin County Sheriff's deputies who later attacked Michael Jenkins and Eddie Parker. This is a clip from a WAPT news report featuring Jenkins' mother, Monica Lee. A news release from the Rankin County Sheriff's Office says deputies got a call about a burglary and vandalism. When they arrived, Damien was identified as the suspect. The release says as a deputy approached him, he began to fight and resist arrest. They were able to eventually get him into custody and into a patrol car. And I'm thinking they're taking my son to jail. So I go outside and tell my son goodbye and I love him and I'll be up there tomorrow. At that point, when I got to the side of the truck, my son was laid on the ground, unresponsive. Monica Lee has said she believes if the sheriff had taken action against the deputies involved in her son's death, Maybe they would not have gone on to attack Michael Jenkins and Eddie Parker. The lawsuit also holds Sheriff Bailey responsible for failing to properly train the deputies involved in these incidents. This is Rankin County Sheriff Brian Bailey speaking last week about the charges his former deputies pled guilty to. Based on the facts and their guilty pleas, all of the former deputies lied to me that night of this incident in January. We have cooperated fully with all outside investigating agencies to uncover the truth and bring justice to the victims. We've also sought assistance from outside agencies and consultants to help us in repairing our trust with the community. So that was Rankin County Sheriff Brian Bailey speaking last week. Uh, Malik Shabazz, the civil rights attorney who has brought the lawsuit um, on behalf of Michael Jenkins uh, and Eddie Parker, if you can respond to the sheriff and to this previous case. Yes. Uh, first of all, I want to give honors to Miss Monica Lee, who was the mother of Damian Cameron, attorney Trent Walker and myself. We represent uh, Ms. Monica Lee for the death of Damian Cameron, which occurred at the hands of the Rankin County Sheriff's Department and its officers, including Hunter Elward, the shooter who didn't just shoot Michael Jenkins in his mouth. He placed the gun inside Michael Jenkins' mouth and held it for an extended period of time, almost up to a minute, before he intentionally shot Michael Jenkins in his mouth attempting to kill him. Uh, yes, Miss Lee is correct. If they would not have participated in a cover up, 
around Damian Cameron's death. Damian Cameron's death is is analogous and very similar to George Floyd's death. It was Hunter Elward and Luke Stickman who put the knees on Damian Cameron's back and on his neck, causing trauma to his neck and causing hemorrhages in both of Damian Cameron's eyes, uh, meaning that the compression on his neck is uh, uh, is what was the what led to uh, asphyxiation and his actual cause of death. But the autopsy mysteriously was ruled undetermined with all of the evidence that I'm saying and all of the gruesome photos of the neck injuries and the hemorrhages of the eyes bulging out of his head. The autopsy finding was mysteriously undetermined. The autopsy itself is missing certain information, and therefore, myself and Black Lawyers for Justice, we have our own forensic pathologist who are coming forth shortly to show you that this was a homicide and that Rankin County and Brian Bailey refused to provide the state medical examiner with information to reach a proper conclusion because they were all protecting the officers from criminal prosecution. Therefore, they they uh, the autopsy is suspicious. The autopsy and the efforts to have a genuine autopsy, it was covered up by Rankin County. And and Brian Bailey has been a part of this. Miss Lee is correct. If they hadn't been trying to cover up, if Bailey hadn't been trying to uh, 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 justify his officers. No, he didn't just not train them. He has participated in acts of excessive force with his department, according to the courts. When Hunter Elward shot Pierre Woods in Rankin County on the ground and he gunned him and he shot him nine times with his rifle and the man was no threat to him. Sheriff Bailey was on the scene and a federal judge ruled that Bailey could not have qualified immunity because he ratified and watched it all go on in person. And so the truth is coming out about the death of Damian Cameron and how uh, they, they, they had the knees on his neck like his mother has testified by affidavit to. And they had the knees on his neck that crushed the life out of Damian Cameron. And they did nothing about it. They've lied to us. But we're going to bring that case. That case is coming back to life. Uh, Rankin County is infested with white supremacists, Ku Klux Klan. They infiltrated the sheriff's department. Brian Bailey has known about this. These are many of these criminals were on duty up until June 1st, only through the Mississippi Bureau of Investigation and U.S. Department of Justice leader Kristen Clark and her southern district in Mississippi, who've done a great job. Only through their efforts has Brian Bailey uh, sheriff trying to come to some remorse. He has not even apologized to the victims. We demand that Brian Bailey step down now. He's a part of a pattern of practice and a culture and a custom of terrorism by his department. We have blacks, whites, rich, poor. They have been beaten by his officers. He's known this all along. And the struggle continues uh, in, in this case for compensation for these two suffering victims, Jenkins and Parker, but for all 
of the victims of Rankin County terrorism. It's the number one county for terrorism and white supremacist infiltration. Case in point for our close, Christian Detman. He has, it's coming out, he has family members that have pled guilty in Mississippi to hate crimes. I mean, a lot more is going to come out about this. Rankin County is infested with white supremacists, Ku Klux Klan, and it's in the police departments. And Malik Shabazz, can you place Rankin County for us in two ways, in history and also just uh, geographically? It's right near Jackson, the capital. Yes. Uh, Attorney Trent Walker says, who grew up in Rankin County, my, my partner, Attorney Trent Walker, states that, that this was customary in Rankin County. They beat first and 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 they don't ask questions later they beat you they kill you and you are ordered not to say anything about it hunter elward the shooter actually pled guilty in federal court to another crime he had committed which contained a similar fact to what he did in the home of jenkins and parker when these deputies busted in to begin this uh, uh torture session hunter elward shot his gun off as an intimidation against Jenkins and Parker. Before he shot Michael later, he shot his gun off. Well, he pled guilty in federal court to doing the same thing to another person uh, uh, in Rankin County. He, he just shooting his gun off like that. Um, uh, so what we're saying, ma'am, is that all of, all of these truths are going to come to light. Rankin County has done this for a long time. It's near Jackson, Mississippi, Jackson, Mississippi. And I believe the county is sort of a reaction to Jackson. Jackson is in Hines County. It's majority black and there's hostility towards Jackson. And Rankin is like a white enclave that is next to Jackson. And it's set up like a almost like a political social uh, uh, antithesis or against Jackson. And so uh, they're clear in ranking just 20 minutes away from Jackson, Mississippi, just like these off these deputies said they didn't want any black men living in the area. The mere fact that there were black men in this area, that they were going to carry out this mission and let them know that they were not welcome and they were going to violate all laws and break in. It's because uh, they have determined, I believe, these deputies and others in that county have determined that Rankin County is for whites and Hines County is for blacks. And they're going to enforce it through the under the color of law, through violence and torture. Not to mention, especially on this program, we cannot forget waterboarding. Waterboarding was where the United States military was condemned for using these techniques at the Abu Ghraib prison in Iraq, in the Iraq war. The military denounced this. But in 2023, incredibly, in Rankin County, these deputies, uh, 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 Elwood, McAlpin, Detman, uh, uh, Updike, Middleton, Hartsfield, they actually waterboarded the two men you see now. They had them on their backs. They had them handcuffs. They had them intimidated, and they were pouring milk, liquids, and grease all over their faces in this insane interrogation and intimidation act. Then after they did all this, 
Can you imagine law enforcement with dildos and sexual devices in their possession, attempting and putting it in the mouths? I hate to say this, that happened to the brothers, but we got to know their pain and suffering. To take a dildo and to shove it in the mouths of handcuffed and bound men and then and waterboard them like that on the ground and then hurl eggs at them and then make them strip naked in the shower to try to clean this mess up, strip these men naked in front of these criminals. You know, it it just never fails to ignite my passion. And therefore, tactically and strategically, we are after Rankin County and we won't let up. I want to end with the voices of Michael, Corey Jenkins and Eddie Terrell Parker. Um, What you how you have lived through the aftermath of this, the trauma that you have experienced, and what you want to come out of this. I mean, it looks like you are exposing uh, an entire uh, sheriff's department in Mississippi. Let's begin with uh, Eddie Parker. We want want justice. We want justice for... uh everyone that, that has uh has gone through this with uh rain county or gone through this because of rain county we want uh we want justice for the ones that uh that were afraid to speak up you know justice for the ones that can't speak up we want uh we want you know something something new and better you know and uh clean to come out of this and michael jenkins basically the same thing uh to make sure that nobody never go through what we went through again you know, um, animals don't get treated like this. You know, I ain't never seen no animal get treated like this. Um, well, just to make sure. I just want to thank yeah. you, Michael Corey Jenkins and Eddie Terrell Parker, for your bravery in coming forward and telling your stories. And also, I want to thank Malik Shabazz, the civil rights attorney with Black Lawyers for Justice. Coming up, we're going to Detroit to talk to a woman who was falsely arrested and jailed while eight months pregnant due to faulty AI facial recognition technology. She's the first woman to be arrested for this. Stay with us. Looking at your picture, baby. When I Saw Your Face by Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings. 
Podcast. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman. We turn now to another shocking story, this one out of Detroit, Michigan, involving a woman named Portia Woodruff, who was eight months pregnant when police mistakenly arrested her for robbery and carjacking. Six officers showed up at her home when she was getting her little daughters ready for school. They took her down to the station, held her for 11 hours, then released her on $100,000 bonds. Uh, Portia Woodruff says she started having contractions in jail, had to be taken to the hospital after her release due to dehydration. A month later, after her arrest, prosecutors dropped the case because the Detroit police had made the arrest based on a faulty AI, artificial intelligence, facial recognition match. According to the ACLU, Portia Woodruff is the first woman, at least the sixth person, to report being falsely accused of a crime as a result of facial recognition technology. All six people have been black. Portia Woodruff is now suing the city of Detroit. She joins us along with her attorney, Ivan Land. We thank you both very much for being with us. Portia, take us back to that day, and I hate to make you do this, but um, the fact that this happened to you um, may be a sign of things to come. You're the first woman to be arrested on facial, faulty facial recognition technology. So you're getting your daughters ready for school. What happens next? Um, the six police officers came to knock on the door. I heard the big, the loud knock. Um, I went down, I opened the door. And it was a female police officer at the door. She asked who, if I was Portia Woodruff. I confirmed, I said yes. Um, she said, I have a warrant for your arrest. So in the beginning, of course, like I said, um, I, I thought it was a joke. Um, so I asked, I said, warrant for what, you know, what, what is the warrant for? She hesitated. Um, she procrastinated. She didn't want to, you know, give me any information. She just wanted me to step outside so that I could be arrested. So I continued to ask another police officer stepped up, um, and interjected, he did say that I had a warrant for my arrest for carjacking. In the midst of the conversation, you know, I, I opened up my door a little bit wider so she could see, so that they could see, you know, I was eight months pregnant. And I also pointed to my cars that were in the driveway at the time. You know, I'm like, I'm eight months pregnant and, you know, I have a car right there. Why would I carjack anyone? So um, I went back and forth, you know, with the police officers for a while, trying to convince them that, you know, you have the wrong person. And my kids were standing there. So I eventually told my children to run upstairs and, you know, wake my fiance up to help me explain, you know, that they had the wrong person. I also called my mother to get her on the phone to help me explain, you know, you have the wrong person. You might want to check, you know, was the person eight months pregnant? Do you have any more information? You know, getting into detail of, you know, why they were there trying to arrest me. So when we went back and forth for a while, um, I was just advised, you know, to go ahead and go and see what it was that they were trying to pin on me. Um, the police officers, they took me, they handcuffed me, and they took me down to the detention center in Detroit, Michigan. Um, I was held there. Um, I was arraigned, and um, I was let out on a personal bond. While being in the detention center, um, I was experiencing, you know, back pain. I was eight months pregnant. I was already having a difficulty pregnancy um, because I was diagnosed with gestational diabetes. Um, when I was pregnant with my son, it was kind of hard to carry him, you know, being a little bit older and then being that 
he, you know, he was a, he was my third child. My pregnancy was a little bit difficult. So um, I was experiencing, you know, uh, anxiety. My, 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 I was having panic attacks. I was just trying to pretty much hold myself together because I didn't understand what was going on. Um, at the time when it happened, I was just, you know, disbelief. I was already embarrassed. My children had seen me being arrested. Nobody knew what was going on. And then I lost hope for the most part, because once I talked to um, my family, they advised me that my lawyer wasn't even able to get me out. So I didn't know what to do. I was just, I was distraught. I was, I was stressed. I was depressed. You know, I was trying to keep myself together and hold myself together for my unborn child, because being under that type of stress could have, you know, ultimately led me to lose my child. And so when you got out, you ended up being going to the hospital? I did. I went to the hospital. Um, they monitored me. They, um, I had to explain to them what was going on because they, they uh, seen that I was under stress. My heart rate was low. The baby's heart rate was low. Um, they had to give me fluids. They gave me two, um, two, two fluid valves because I was dehydrated. Um, I didn't get it. I didn't eat anything while I was in, in, in the dissension center, the food there, <laughs> I want to give it to my dog, but, um, uh, I drunk a concentrated lemonade to try to hold me over. Like I said, it was more so about my unborn child at the time that I was trying to focus on, even though everything else was going on. Cause I felt like I had, you know, no control over what was going on because I was feeling helpless. No one was listening to me. No one would listen to me. No one would take what I was saying seriously. It was as if I was already a suspect, you know? So with that being said, um, you know, it, 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 that, that was a traumatizing experience. It still is. My, my kids are afraid. I'm, I'm afraid the police get beside me or behind me. I go in a, a, a panic mode instantly. My children go in a panic mode instantly. My kids thought I would have been shot. <laughs> they seen police officers on my on my doorstep, you know, guns on their hips. They're they're saying I'm in the carjacking and that's a, you know, uh armed robbery and carjacking. That's a serious that's a serious crime. I want to bring your lawyer in, Ivan Land, also in Detroit. Um Mr. Land, if you can talk about why you're suing the city of Detroit right now. Well first and foremost, thank you for having us. Uh, we're suing Detroit because we believe that um, facial recognition technology is an investigative tool, and you must use that tool properly. Uh, if you don't use the tool properly, someone will get hurt, and that's what happened with Miss Woodruff. Uh, the uh, when Miss Woodruff was uh, arrested, prior to her being arraigned, the officer who viewed the video footage of the real suspect actually had an interview with Ms. Woodroff two hours before her arraignment. They had a conversation. She knew that Ms. Woodroff was eight months pregnant. She took pictures of Ms. Woodroff and she walked out of that cell, her and another detective, and they sent Ms. Woodroff back to a jail cell. Um, Ms. Woodroff was subsequently arraigned um, and given a $100,000 personal bond. They was gonna place a tether on Ms. Woodroth. At the time, I did not know this was going on. I attempted to have her released through something called a writ of habeas corpus where I was challenging her incarceration. I learned though that the warrant had already been issued. 
Now, that detective could have walked her out of there with her, but they left Miss Woodroff there. Miss Woodroff was arraigned at around 2.30. She was released at 7 o'clock. But while Miss Woodroff was incarcerated, Miss Woodroff thanked God for her nursing background. Miss Woodroff was in there practicing survival techniques. She was sitting for 30 minutes. She was standing for 30 minutes. She was checking her pulse. She knew she was losing it. Now, when the detective came to Ms. Woodroth, Ms. Woodroth thought she saw a breath of fresh, fresh air. Because guess what? The detective was a female. And Ms. Woodroth hoped that she had children. So she, could, she hoped that she knew what she was going through at eight months pregnant. However, she left her there. Now, Ms. Woodroth was rushed to the hospital by her fiancé. She said, get me to the hospital because she was checking her pulse again. Thank God for her nursing background. Ms. Woodroff got to the hospital. They rushed her into her room, asked her what happened. Her baby heart rate was low. Her heart rate was low. They gave her some fluids. Ms. Woodroff was released at 3 a.m. in the morning. She was told that her doctor needed to contact her in 24 hours. Miss Woodroff went home and got a little sleep. She headed back up to the police. Well, she called the police officer and asked, could she have her phone back? Because her doctor's, it's the only way her children and the doctor could get in contact with her. And this detective doubled down and told her, we have to get a warrant. because We want to check your phone to determine where you in the area when the crime was committed. So I'm suing the Detroit police for false arrest, false imprisonment, and malicious prosecution, and something called the Elliot Larson Act, which this uh, facial recognition is biased towards darker or black individuals. So it's a racist technique that's being used, and it's not you being used properly. So that's why we're suing. For context on the racial disparity that plagues facial recognition software, I want to turn to Joy Bolamwini, uh, who is head of the Justice Algorithmic uh, League. I have been so excited to see the reintroduction of the Facial Recognition and Biometric Technology Moratorium Act. And part of why I'm excited to see this reintroduction is there's an opportunity to put in protections. We've seen from cities from Oakland uh, to Boston, where I'm at, Jackson, Mississippi, to Portland, Oregon, and Portland, Maine, that cities have actually put restrictions on the use of facial recognition technology. So what we saw happen, right? with a eight months pregnant person being actually arrested would not uh, have happened. And so we see that local efforts actually do make a difference, but we can't just hope you happen to live in a city that has adopted uh, one of these measures. So that's why it's crucial. We actually push forward with the federal legislation. So I am very excited to see the reintroduction of that act. And now's the time to push it forward. I also think- I want to just say that's uh, Joy Bolamwini, who is head of the Algorithmic Justice League. League. Um, <clears throat> and I want to get Portia Woodruff's final comment before we go to a post-show with Portia and Ivan Land. Your thoughts on this final point of coded bias, that AI is biased against uh, people of color. Well, I feel like it's biased. Um, 
as noted, I'm the sixth person. Um, that I'm we the know first of. woman, <laughs> only female, um, that has been affected by this facial recognition. I feel like with its use, it should be properly used to actually identify. Portia Woodruff, we're going to ask you to save that thought for part two. Portia Woodruff and Ivan Land, thanks so much for joining us. This is Democracy Now!